As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Hello, Talent Magnet community. I just wanted to uh, thank you for tuning in to this episode. You are going to hear from one of our faculty, Don Frerichs, who is leading an extraordinary leader series as a part of the Talent Magnet platform. Don is one of our longstanding faculty members. He's an incredible coach, an incredible leader, and he is highlighting extraordinary leaders as a part of this series. So we hope you enjoy. Thank you for tuning in. And without further ado, I turn it over to Don. Welcome, everyone. This is Don Frerichs with the Talent Magnet Institute podcast, the Extraordinary Leader Series. I'm a guest host for Mike Sippel, and this is the series where we interview extraordinary leaders about their experience of becoming great at leadership. I'm really excited about today's guest, Matt Schenk, who's with me. Hey, Matt, how are you? Um, how are you? Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm thrilled. What we try to do during this time frame with this discussion is to try to unpack what's meaningful about leadership development. And we asked all of our guests to try to figure out what happened to them along their experiences of life and how they became a great leader. And today you're going to find that Matt has a tremendous amount of experience and he comes to us from the world of academia. In fact, today he is the president at Virginia Foundation for Independent Colleges. And he's also the president emeritus at Marymount University after he served a seven-year term there as president. He is an accomplished scholar. He's written several books. He's published numerous articles and presented at many, many conferences. He has a bachelor's of science in psychology, a master's of arts in psychology, and a PhD in experimental psychology, which must make you really brilliant about psychology. Is that right? Well, you would think so, but actually, <laughs> I did not pursue that as a career. And uh, as you know, I turned to marketing or I used the principles of psychology to better my my academic career and to be honest my industry career when I first started was in marketing so I will talk later about that's beautiful when I read that reread that I became aware that again not only do you have all of that experience with psychology but I recall you telling me that your both your parents have PhDs as well so you come from a very academic family right my mom does not my dad was a doctor family practitioner, so not a PhD. My mom was a librarian, so very, very learned and scholarly, but not a PhD. So, so coming from that, then you, you obviously had to excel in either one way or the other. You had to get your medical degree or you had to get a PhD of some sort, right? So you could uphold the family name. Exactly. Exactly. Or what I really was hoping for is, you know, PGA or Major League Baseball. <laughs> that didn't quite turn out. Well, that's the piece that I left out of your introduction. I, I think we should tell everybody that you played baseball for Wyoming in, in college. Is that right? That's correct. It was a great experience. Great experience. And that formed, obviously, a lot of who you are. You're very competitive. And you love sports today. And you've got two beautiful daughters that seem to be following that same path, right? I do. I do. <laughs> you know, let the listeners know that, you know, when you've got somebody that is from academia, in that world, my father, too, was at the University of Dayton, and that's how I met Matt. We were became friends there when he was the dean of the School of Business, 
And so I know how different that world is, but when you compare the world of academia to business, what are the likenesses and what are the dissimilarities that maybe our listeners should be aware of just so that they know what some of your leadership challenges have been in the past? It's actually a great question. I think what's happening is if you looked at the academic industry on a spectrum of pure academic, we're here for learning to pure business. We're here for profit. Obviously, most academic institutions that we're familiar with are nonprofit institutions like the University of Dayton or Marymount. There are certainly for-profit institutions out there, but if you think about that spectrum, we have definitely seen movement from pure learning to more of a career orientation, more of a profit orientation, if you will. And because of the current crisis, the COVID crisis, you know, a lot of the private institutions that I am familiar with and deal with, they're going to really have to shift their thinking if they haven't already and have that business mentality. So what really makes that difficult, as you know, in a university, we have, you know, a small piece called faculty, slightly important to the enterprise. And faculty sometimes treat themselves or think of themselves as independent contractors, especially those with tenure. Again, they all do a great job, or 95% of them do a fantastic job. But with a university, you have shared governance where the leader, the president, the dean, whatever he or she's title might be, can't just dictate to a tenure faculty member, do this like you could in a corporate environment. So it really becomes a challenge of leadership in a different sort of way. So lots of other, you know, I would say minute differences, but that's the one most glaring that most people point to. It's so interesting that you say that the whole idea of the tenured professional and what that does to give them the ability to to know that their career is is basically taken care of as long as they do the the things that are necessary for that college and that university. But Today, I think a lot of people are saying, like, is that the right idea? You know, with everything changing, do we need to change the perspective on what tenure means or what it doesn't mean? And is it something that you think is going to change? Well, actually, I think it will. But it will be a tough, tough battle. And, um, you know, some universities have made that shift and they, instead of a tenured contract, which basically is lifetime employment, usually after a six-year window, of proving yourself in teaching, research, and service. And the degree to which those are important is dependent on the university that you're working for. So, for example, Dayton might have a higher research profile or expectation than a Marymount would as a liberal arts institution that's primarily undergraduate. So, again, after that six-year period, if somebody achieves tenure, they're basically, as you said, locked in unless something just egregious happens, you know, with them. So it's extremely difficult once they're there to remove them, which creates a hurdle in some cases. Now, most faculty don't take advantage of that, but there are certainly examples of people that are just sort of there on the job, still using their class notes from 20 years ago. Very few, but there's still examples of that. They lose their motivation. Yeah, unfortunately, the tenured system kind of gets labeled with that that outlier, those few professors that do take advantage of the system. And unfortunately, that's the case that universities are fighting with today. Matt, one of the things I saw in you from day one when we first met is that you were an uncommon academic. From my perspective, you were 
running the school of business and you understood business as well as the people that you talked to about it. And I was appreciative right away that you understood the language of business. You thought like a business person. You realized there had to be results and that it, even though you had the shared governance leadership that you could only utilize within the school, you also came across as somebody that wanted to make a difference, to somebody that wanted to serve the interest of the people that you were working with and talking to in all cases. And I always appreciated that about you. You, were, you stood out as somebody that was odd <laughs> in the academic system. Why is that? Why were you that way? And has that just always been your, your leadership style or was that something you did intentional? Can you help the listeners kind of understand how you got your I honestly think if with many of the things that you might talk about with other leaders, if you do them too intentionally, it creates a false persona, if you will. And I don't care who you are, whether it's kids or people that are working with you or for you, people see through that very, very easily. So I think if you're truly there for the right reason to impact the lives of other people, which not to get too deep too quick here, but philosophically, I believe that we're all here for is to really influence and impact the lives of others. And you can certainly have a huge impact in the university as a faculty member or administrator or even the person that's the food service professional that's in the, you know, in the dorms every day. Some of those people have a bigger impact than the present. So you're independent of what their profile might be, job might be at the university, everybody is there to make an impact. So I think that's true in any job, not just universities. So that's always been sort of part of my philosophy of life and work. And, uh, you know, hopefully people see that for what it is. So it sounds like you've really striven to be a leader that is authentic, who you are, not somebody that, and you haven't necessarily just practiced leadership skills, but your purpose is always to then make a difference in other people's lives. And as a result of that, that's authentically the way that you come across. That's kind of that simple, but that powerful at the same time. Is that accurate? Uh, I think that's accurate. Again, part of being a good leader, as you know, is humility. So I don't want to say that I possess all that, but <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that that's accurate. Or at least that's what I try to do. Could I give you some feedback? Sure. So uh, unbeknownst to Matt, I asked for some people that knew Matt. Uh, so, from, so to get re- feedback for him to provide on this show. And Matt, one of the things that people said is that you have a tremendous amount of humility, just as we were talking about. It's funny that you brought that up, that you have a deep empathy for other people, even those that have not earned your trust. And I thought, what an interesting comment, even those that have not earned your trust. And I think the point was, is that you really get people whether or not they get you or whether or not they trust or are trustworthy. What is it about you and your leadership that you don't judge others to not be worthy of your trust and have that level of empathy? That's really interesting. Well, I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about. If you treat people with dignity, irrespective of what they can do for you, ultimately they're going to do great things for, for either you or your organization. So I'll preempt one of your questions potentially, and that is, you know, you get asked a lot about leadership style, and I don't particularly prescribe the one style, but I do believe you, you sort of brought it up, trust, faith, you know, a commitment to others. Those three things combined will allow you to build a community. So I think if you build 
build that community than if you are in a for-profit situation or certainly at a university. I never, you know, we were fortunate during my presidency at Marymount, we always generated a surplus, which is the nonprofit way of saying profit at the end of the year that we could then reinvest, not give back to shareholders because we don't have any, but we could reinvest in the university. You know, if you do those things and build that community, then you can reap the reward, whatever it might be for your organization. There's been a lot of discussion about how to develop leadership skills in today's environment. And there's so many classes and training and books and podcasts, and it goes on and on, right? And even at universities today, we're now teaching the topic of leadership, which I think is all good. Mm -hmm. If we follow the 70-20-10 model, which I'm sure you've seen before, 70% of our really valuable leadership development comes through experience and doing work and finding out what works and what doesn't work on the job. And 20% of it comes from being able to get feedback from others, whether it be a coach or your boss or the people that you work with. And only 10% of meaningful uh, leadership development might come from the classroom, whether that be on a university setting or in a corporate classroom, that type of thing. You know, looking back over your career, what kind of things occurred to you that, that helped you become a, a leader? Did you have a great boss that pointed you in the right direction? Did you have a really bad boss that didn't point you in the right direction but motivated you? I mean, what were the things that stand out in your mind that helped you become the leader you are today? As you said, you learn from both the good and the bad. And, and typically, that's within one person. There's not a person that's just a great leader in every aspect, right? And there's not probably one that's just a terrible, well, there might be a couple that are terrible in every aspect, but very, very rarely. And so everybody has strengths and weaknesses. So as you're going through your career and watching and observing, you know, I don't think I did this necessarily intentionally, but you can pick out those things that you say, wow, I wish I could deal with people like that. Or wow, I wish I could, I wish I could give a speech like this particular leader just gave. Or wow, I which I had the technical ability to analyze, you know, the financials like this particular leader has. So you pick that up and hopefully over time you try to, to enhance your skills in those areas and better yourself as a leader. Obviously avoid making the mistakes that either others have made and you've seen it, or probably more importantly, you avoid making your own mistake. Mm-hmm. You have a very high level of emotional intelligence, or at least that's some of the feedback that I also got about you, and that you know how to engage with people. The comment was, you can hang with anybody. You've got your streetwise. I thought, yeah, that, that actually does describe you pretty well. I like that. Did that just come to you naturally, or is that something you had to develop in the way that we're talking about? Well, I think some of it is just your environment. You know, I did not grow up in a particularly wealthy family. I didn't grow up in a particularly wealthy area. Certainly not a, not any mean, but by any means of a family that struggles over an area that you know you didn't feel safe in, but a very diverse area. I grew up in St. Louis, so there's a lot of diversity there. My high school was relatively diverse. I played baseball with a diverse group of individuals, both ethnic and geographic, geographically and in every way. And you were talking about that, probably sports prepare you to deal with different people better than anything you can do. As you move up the ranks and get to higher and higher levels, you're going to be dealing with all sorts of different types of people on a team. 
you know, I think that helps you or helps me again, not intentionally, but you know, if you respect everybody, no matter where they're coming from, it's just natural, I think. Second nature. Second nature, right. I didn't think that you probably um, had to concentrate on. I think it probably is one of those things that you were maybe uh, gifted with. It seems like some leaders start with skills and abilities and then multiply those into what makes them really effective. And I think that's what you did. Others don't have as much to start with and they have to learn more and, and learn more rapidly. Right. One leader said to me, he said, I was trying to learn how to be a leader because I had no idea how to do it. He was a technical person, you know, grew up in IT. And uh, he said, I worked so hard to emulate this one guy who I thought was a great leader. He was my boss at the time. And eventually the guy came to me and said, hey, listen, I know you've been working really hard at this, but you got to learn to lead in your own way because acting like me is not going to help. At all. Right. I thought, what a great... It's interesting because if you go back to what you said before, you know, about learning to lead in the classroom, of course, there are some great books like the ones that you just wrote. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but if you're trying to learn to lead in the classroom, I'll go back to the, I don't know if I've told you this, use this analogy on you before, but I was a pitcher in baseball, right? And one of the reasons I never progressed beyond college is I had a terrible fastball. Hmm. So I was serviceable for a college and kind of a control pitcher and had a lot of different pitches, but just a terrible fastball. You see people, I had, I had guys on my team that never even pitched in a college game. They were on the team, but they were big and threw very hard. Well, who got drafted? Not me, mm-hmm. but the guys that could throw hard. Because the notion is you can teach that person to pitch because they already throw hard. You can't teach me to throw harder. It's just not, just not possible. Right. You know, maybe if I, was more serious about weight training or whatever conditioning, I might be able to throw a couple miles an hour faster, but not enough to really make a difference. So if you go back to that same sort of thinking about leadership, either sort of you have it in some respects or you don't. We always had that great debate about entrepreneurship. Dayton's got a great, University of Dayton's got a great entrepreneurship program. Some people would say, you can never teach somebody to be an entrepreneur. Well, I believe that you are sort of born with it. But then if you can teach them even more mm. or teach them to be a pitcher or teach them to be a leader, they're going to be even better. Right. And it could be the difference between never pitching in a game and being in a major league. Mm. So, you know, that's the argument that I would always fall back on when people would say, well, you can't teach anybody to be a leader. I think you can, but you can't take somebody that doesn't have any natural ability and make them a world-class leader. Right, right. You um, have not used the term servant leader, and I think there's some issues today with the terminology. I was just reading an article today and that was in CEO Magazine in the uh, March-April issue, and Patrick Lencioni talks about the fact that servant leadership is an oxymoron, like it's, it's a double word. It's the, it's the same thing. We shouldn't have to say servant leader because leadership is about serving others. Right. One of the people that gave me feedback about you said, Matt will help anyone. He lives his life to serve others. He's selfless. He's down to earth. And I don't say this to, to placate you or to, to, to build you up, but as a leader, I can't think of anything more foundational than that type of comment, that when other people experience you and your heart and your interest and your intentions, 
to help them, help anyone, and that you live your life to serve others, I don't think it matters what we call it. And I agree with Lencioni that it doesn't have to be called servant leadership. It's just leadership. Could you say a little bit more about that for our listeners? I think that sometimes we're looking for the secret bullet, uh, the silver bullet to find and develop our skills as leaders, but maybe it's really a foundation of purpose and why we do what we do that matters more than anything else. Could you speak to that? Well, first of all, whoever these people are that you're talking to, I'm going to have to find out and deliver some bottles of bourbon to them or whatever their drink of choice might be. I think you actually know who it is, so you'll probably have to deliver him a bottle. Yeah, absolutely. So, but anyway, back to the servant leadership question, I think it is more foundational. Yeah. And it's more about who you are to begin with and the fact that you do want to, you're there to serve others. They're not there to serve you. If you feel like you're a leader and you feel like you have, you know, either A, the authority to make people do things, which never works in a university and probably rarely works in a corporate environment, you know, it's just going to be a quick failure. So you really have to demonstrate that you're there for them to make them better people. And by doing so, you're going to make the organization stronger is at least the goal of, I believe, of servant leadership. So we've got a lot of great examples all down through history and the Bible of great servant leaders have succeeded and put others before themselves. You have some recent political examples, not to get into that too too deeply, but of where, you know, that just doesn't work for people. It just doesn't work, does it? I'm sure that you've had people that have been on your staffs that maybe didn't start as great leaders. Maybe they thought of themselves as educators first and only, and you had to help them have a different awareness about the purpose of leadership like we're talking about, as well as maybe develop some basic skills of asking great questions and being curious and, and listening, you know, some of those foundational things. What have you done in the past to help people get better that needed to really get better? Maybe they were below average and they had to become better to be useful to you and your program. What have you done? Again, it goes back to being sort of, I wouldn't say this is a bad thing to do, but I don't think I've ever really formally coached anybody. Because mm. I, don't, I don't know how well, for me, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work mm-hmm. for me to be the coach. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't feel like I'm in a position to be the coach. But what I try to do is if I spot you and Don, let's say that you're working for me right now for the Virginia Foundation, and you're a great young potential leader that's going to come up through the ranks. I'm going to work with you, not directly, but put you in position to gain more experience and then have conversation with you, but not like, okay, come in for your coaching session now. Again, nothing wrong with that. Certain people can learn and benefit from that, but just not what I would feel comfortable doing. So I might say, you know, I want you to serve on this finance committee with the board so that you can gather more financial skills that you're going to need later on when you're the And after those meetings, I would say, okay, so did you understand why this person went in this direction or did you understand what this particular financial ratio was all about? So kind of helping and coaching in that way rather than sitting down and saying, you need to work on these things. I completely understand what you're talking about. And that 70-20-10 model that I was talking about earlier, that fits into that 70% category. I believe Matt was on a group that I studied for a while, 21 Extraordinary Leaders. And uh, you'll recall that one of those 
people in that group, Matt, was Richard Davis, who ran U.S. Bank Corp for a number of mm-hmm. years as their CEO, and then was their chairman and now is running Make-A-Wish and doing some great job there. But Richard said he loved to take people, and this is, I think, consistent with what you're saying, he loved to take people out of their domain at the bank because most of the people that surrounded him have been working at the bank for years and years and years, great bankers, great financial analysts, understood so many things about banking. But he didn't feel like that was the place for them to learn leadership. So he intentionally asked them to go outside of the bank and lead a nonprofit somewhere, service organization that they knew nothing about. And right. he said, you cannot believe how much they learned because they did, weren't the smartest person in the room anymore. And because they didn't, they couldn't use their technical professional expertise to solve problems and make decisions. They had to now work through people because that's all they had to lean on. And I just think it's a brilliant story and example. And I believe it's consistent with what you're talking about. There's an academic program. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, it's unique to, at least in higher education, it's, it's probably the program, the leadership development program that has the best reputation. It's called the ACE, American Council of Education Fellows Program. Okay. So I was fortunate enough many moons ago to be selected as an ACE fellow. And what that does, if you're selected for a cohort of, I think there was about 25 of us at the time, once you're selected, you can choose any university in the country that will accept you to shadow the president or the vice presidents for a year. I had only worked at a public university, University of Mississippi and Northern Kentucky University, which you're aware of just because of your location. I had only worked at those institutions and I chose to go to Vanderbilt because I wanted to get exposure to a private university. And as it so happened, one of the great, most well-known presidents in higher ed, still one of the great, most well-known, Gordon Gee, who used to be the president of Ohio State twice, now at West Virginia for his second time, he was the president of Vanderbilt. And so two reasons I tell you the story. Number one, I wanted to go to a different type of organization or university in this case to get the experience, which actually, by the way, I think gave me the opportunity to work at Dayton, mm. which then gave me the opportunity to work at Marymount. Number two, this guy, didn't, you know, I didn't necessarily go there because I was too naive to know what a big wig he was in the higher ed circles at that time, but it's somebody that's still a mentor, if you will, to me today. So if you go outside of your normal comfort zone, I think it only pays dividends. That makes perfect sense. Thanks for sharing that story. I, I think I recall telling <clears throat> a story about something in the lunchroom with Gordon Gee, right? Didn't you tell me that there, he had a certain practice? Right. One of his great, great traits, extremely people-oriented to the extent that he knows people's name on campus. Mm. You know, this is obviously a pretty big campus, Vanderbilt or even bigger, obviously, Ohio State knows their parents' names. If we were walking to a meeting, you know, and here's point A and here's point B, he would sometimes walk out of his way to go through, like, the lunchroom or where students were gathered so that he could make his presence known. So I thought that was an interesting, you know, interesting lesson, if you will. Yeah, that that would uh, certainly open my eyes. I'm typically uh, back back to back in meetings and uh, rushing from one to the next to the next and trying to right. get it done as possible and the shortest route possible and to do <laughs> right 
like there's some benefit to doing more and more and more and more, right? Rather than figuring out how to actually connect with people along the way because your job is leadership. It's not meeting attendee. <laughs> right. Maybe in some way the fact that we're all quarantined now and you know going through the challenges of COVID gives you a chance to step back and realize the importance of relationships as opposed to not that we're not constantly on Zoom meetings, but certainly in my world, I've been able to catch up with a lot of people just because of not taking the time to travel from here or there to everywhere. Yeah, that's a great point. What are your thoughts that you might be able to offer to our listeners, the next generation leaders, people that are going to have to figure out what does leadership look like maybe in this semi-virtual or completely virtual world? Do you have any thoughts about that since it seems like the leadership challenge is just getting getting more complex than it was before? Yeah, in fact, it's interesting you say that, and I'll have to turn the table on you and actually have you be my guest. One of the things I'm going to try to do with the foundation is we support 15 of the private universities in Virginia. Mm -hmm. We support them largely through financial means and through scholarships and monies that we would raise, but we also have some joint co-curricular programming. So my thought for the fall is to get maybe four or five students from each university. Mm. I'm thinking probably underrepresented students because we want to make sure that we're serving those students well. But to have those students then join a virtual leadership series and have leaders from across different industries talk about how they lead the online world. Mm. So a friend of mine happens to be one of the presidents at Zoom. Great person to have talk about it. Another good friend of mine is the CEO of Lloyd Consulting. He'll be fantastic because he's doing his own podcasts and all sorts of things to reach his. I think he's got like 60,000 employees or something like that. So I don't necessarily have the answer to your question, but I hope soon I'll have a lot more information to share about how these people are dealing with it. That's great. Yeah, I think we're all looking for answers, which is wonderful. And those answers certainly will be created. Uh, I don't think they're actually in a book today. Maybe there's certain ideas that we can utilize from what we've done in the past, but you're right. There's a lot to be learned and to be created, which is, I think that's the best type of leader, somebody that is willing to take a risk and try to do things that are different than have been done before. And it's interesting. My um, a good friend from Deloitte was saying just the simple things like what he might wear on podcasts to his, to all employees around the world makes a big difference. It's just kind of an informality or a conversation starter. Right. That people just relate to where they wouldn't necessarily see him like that under normal business conditions. Yeah. That's It'll be great, great insight. I was just on a, another uh, podcast and Josh White from uh, Simon Property Group said that he felt like maybe one of the simple things we all could do more of, and this ties into what you're saying about you know being able to slow things down, was to reflect more on what's happening to us. What are we doing? What's working? What's not working? What can I be better at? How can I have more influence as a leader? And as I heard him talk about that, I thought, wow, that's right out of my own playbook because I love all of those things. I often talk to my clients about journaling and reflecting because I believe, believe life teaches us. Life is the great teacher. And if we pay attention to all the things that are happening around us, it's amazing how much we can pick up on it. But because most of us are so fast paced, we pack our schedules too tight. Like I was saying, I have done in the past. 
we don't get to benefit from all that learning that occurs to us throughout life. We just kind of keep rebounding and going to the next basket. So right. I think that's a good thing for our listeners, but I, I would assume you probably have not been a journaler. Is that true? I have not. Yeah. So that just give you an example, like you don't have to be a journaler to be a great leader like Matt is. But for those of you that that speaks to, I think it's a really great skill. Go ahead. You know, what I was going to say is I, I hope that I can, I don't necessarily reflect back like others might, and it might be very, very beneficial. But when situations arise in my current job, I think back to how I might have handled it or mishandled it in the past. And hopefully, you know, so I do think back and reflect. I just don't do it in a, maybe a systematic way or mm-hmm. a situational reflection. If there is such a thing, that could be a new management term, situational reflection. So, <laughs> Get a book out of that, maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I do think it's important to kind of think back about, okay, well, how did I handle this? What worked? What didn't work? And um, it goes back to your previous question about, other leaders that you've worked with or served under, you know, what worked for them, just like, the, you know, story of Gordon Bean going through the, the cafeteria when he didn't have to work for him. And I certainly tried to emulate that a little bit when I was at Marymount. Right. So you figured it out in your, your own way. It's interesting that today we've talked a lot about being able to build a great deal of trust and helping people uh, commit to others and having faith to build that community. You've always been in organizations that I think that at least the part that I know about your past where you've had great community. Community is a big part of, I think, what defines the organizations that you want to be a part of. Could you talk to me a little bit about and let the listeners know what your thoughts are about why community is so important and and why, whether it's a business or a school, that is essential in terms of building a team that can win? Right. But. If you go back, and this is not a formal model that I've really created or thought about much, but if you go back, the community is one of the essential fundamental building blocks along with trust, along with your own faith to have those things or to share those things is going to build the community that you want. And the reason that you're building that community is not only for its own benefits of relationships that you would make and friends that you make, but it's also to achieve a shared vision of the future. So one of the things a lot of organizations harp on, I think, maybe a little bit too much is their mission and not their vision. Mm. And so with vision, you're talking about where you want to go. Obviously, everybody, I think, understands that as opposed to mission, what your purpose is. But if you have a leader that communicates that shared vision, and you build community towards understanding what that is, you're more than halfway there, is what I would say. Makes perfect sense. You can get sort of people to buy in, to build community around what the vision is, to achieving that vision together. I think you're going to be successful. That's beautiful. Any uh, words of, of wisdom for the individual that's saying, okay, this is all well and fine, but I feel like I need to go do something to be a better leader. What would the one action item, if you're going to say, well, if you really want to be a good leader, go do X, what would that be? I don't know. I mean, I guess if it's, if it's a technical piece of the, the job, if you will, if it's a financial piece or if it's a, a marketing piece that maybe maybe you're 
an accountant and you're taking a CEO role and you, you don't feel like you have as much expertise in marketing, you could certainly seek out professional development opportunities or university opportunities to better those things. That's probably much easier because it's more tangible, if you will. The piece that's harder is probably just learning through observation. So one of the things that I enjoy that serves multiple purposes is serving on nonprofit boards. And the reason that I'm saying it serves multiple purposes, hopefully I'm adding to what they're trying to achieve because of my experience. But I also get a chance to interact with other board members who are great leaders in their own right. And you get a chance to see the nonprofit executive, whether whatever their title might be, executive director or president or CEO of that nonprofit, you get to see them in action. So there's a lot of times I'll come out of a, a meeting where on the board and I'll say, oh, I did or didn't like the way this particular part of the meeting was handled or the way that this particular CEO handled this challenge by the board or didn't follow up with the board. So other than just going out and observing people, one way to do it, never really thought about it like this before, but one may maybe to get yourself involved in you know, some nonprofit board work. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of nonprofits that are looking for people to help them grow their their business. And they too have been challenged now more than anybody, I think, when it comes to COVID because the funds have been cut off. Their mission has been possibly cut off as well. And they right. couldn't be any more difficult, could they? Right. No, I would, I would definitely think that, that would be a good, good way to observe and to assist at the same time. Well, thank you uh, so much for your time. Is um, there anything that you would hope that we would have gotten into that we haven't uncovered yet? Other than your life story, I think we're, we're pretty much set. Just <laughs> uh, love to hear that. <laughs> it's great to talk with you and share some things with you. And I've always admired you personally for what you achieved and done. And back when we were in Dayton, had some great times. And so great to be with you. You as well. I hope that our listeners got that one thing that we promised to give them. And, you know, I certainly, Matt, through our conversation, feel like you do a nice job kind of grounding all of the technical conversation around leadership development to a foundation of, hey, it's all about purpose. And if you really do desire to make a difference, like the feedback that we received about you, if you really do want to help anyone and you live to serve others and you're that selfless and down to earth, you can really build a lot of skills on top of that. But it starts with that foundation. And if your purpose isn't at that level, I encourage the listeners to really think about what is your purpose then, you know, and what is the focus that you've had? Because you, it's difficult to be an extraordinary leader unless that's the foundation. Very well said. Very well said. And I think, you know, you're talking about being selfless. But to me, it's really being selfish in a way because it makes you feel better to help others. Yes, no doubt. Matt, I know that you'd be willing to take any questions from uh, our audience today. And, and if you have a question for myself or Matt, please go to talentmagnetinstitute.com backslash podcast, and you can leave a question there for us. We'll get back to you as soon as possible. We want to say thank you to all of our listeners for participating today. We hope that you got that one thing and have a great day. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review.
The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr., Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.